As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Philip Gawthorne, and with me as always is Liam Billingham, and today's film is Die Hard with a Vengeance. It's Die Hard in New York City. Oh, my voice. Oof, it's that hangover that I've been nursing all morning, Phil. (laughs) Have some aspirin. Have some aspirin with a very specific uh, uh, Canadian pharmacy on the label. That's how I solved the mystery of where the gold (laughs) went, was to look at the aspirin bottle and realize that it's north of the border. So big movie, big movie. We're a diehard podcast. This is one of the only, only five diehard films. This is a big deal, special movie. So we have a very special guest today. Um, We have a writer, journalist, editor at Dexerto.com. And more importantly, one of my favorite human beings, a very warm welcome to Mr. Chris Tilley. Hello, fellas. Hi, Liam. Hi, Phil. Uh, hey, Chris. So honoured. So honoured. Thank you for having me on a Die Hard episode of the Die Hard podcast. And it's one of the good diehards. I feel so honoured. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> there's a, well, we're yeah, there's to like a small ch- a chance, not, an, a, not a small chance that it's not one of the good diehards. So I'm glad we got you before we got there. Oh my goodness! Yes, bullet dodged, much like the bullets McLean dodges in this movie. <laughs> so, so Chris, what's your like? You, you're a big Die Hard guy, right? Like, let's get that. Mm. Like, uh, you know, the first movie. Like, what's your what's your general relationship with this franchise? Yeah, I mean, like most of my generation, I discovered Die Hard on video and was a massive fan from day one. And I guess in my capacity as a film journalist, I've written about that first movie a ton of times. Um, I've interviewed Steve D'Souza about it. Um, And so, yeah, and even the most recent films I was covering as a professional journalist, those weren't as much fun. Um, 
And I do tend to, if I'm going to watch a Die Hard movie, I do tend to put on the first one rather than watching any of the sequels. Mm. But um, yeah, it's a franchise I love and it's obviously a character I love. So big fan here. Yeah. And Liam, I know I've, I'll talk about my history with it in a second, but you're a, you're a New York you're a New York guy, right? To some extent. Oh, and yeah. this movie is important to you personally in that, from that standpoint. Well, I should say before that, I saw this movie opening night with my father and my best friend. Like, I was primed for this. I similarly, I was 13, 12, 13 when this movie came out. My dad had shown me Die Hard. I'd seen Die Hard. Die Hard 2 until this one came out was my like, I'm gonna put something on in the background kind of movie. It was Die Hard and Die Hard 2. And I saw this opening day. I loved it. Um, I, I've always loved it despite some, some reservations about certain things about it. And I lived in New York uh, from 19, excuse me, from 2008 until 2020. I lived in Harlem for a period. I went to school in Harlem and lived uptown for a while. Uh, I was on the three train, which figure all the time, which figures really prominently into this movie. I used to ride the three train to go to Lincoln Center to see art films basically every day that I was in grad school. And I rode the three train to New Lots Avenue, the way end of the line, uh, every day, every week for work for a long time. So despite only living in Manhattan for a year and going to school there for two years, then this is a Manhattan movie. Uh, it's very, very close to my heart in terms of uh, it's, I think it is up there with Ghostbusters as a, one of the great mainstream New York city movies, if not the great mainstream New yeah. York city movie, especially wow. for the first hour. It's one of the great New York movies. Also one of the great hangover movies. Yep. And Bruce has done a, a trifecta, I would say, with with Last Boy Scout, this, and Sixteen Blocks are the three great uh, hangover. <gasps> I forgot movies. about Sixteen Blocks. He does have a hangover in that. And no one d rocks a hangover like Brucey. I mean, Brucey. you know, he's he's the king. He's the king. I, I was like you, Liam. Though I was there opening night um, with my mates because that summer it wasn't a great summer for movies. We had Waterworld, there was a crap Batman, there was a rubbish Judge Dredd movie. Like, this was our film. And Batman so, yeah. Forever? Yeah. Is this the Batman Forever summer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a rough movie. I like that movie, but only in retrospect. When it came it's, out... 95 was no 94, put it that way. Yeah. No. <laughs> 94 and, and, was nonstop bangers. And so I went opening yeah. up with my mates, and, and it, it delivered. This film does oh, deliver. Oh, it's, my God. It was a, gr yeah. it was a great yeah. time at the movies. I, I saw it with my dad too. For, um, I remember it quite vividly because it was uh, it was a rare sort of boys' week where my mum was away uh, studying at Open University, if I remember rightly. So my dad and I had the house to ourselves. So it's a bit like you remember that Simpsons episode where Homer and Bart <laughs> <laughs> sort of left to their own devices that are making garbage angels in the you know on on the on the living room floor. But my dad and I had this great week, and this was the this starting point of it and um you know we did other things we went camping that was a disaster <laughs> but we had a couple of nice bike rides and some fun things but basically yeah we, my dad and i went to see this i think it was the start it was the sort of opening event of that week and we absolutely loved it loved it you know it was just as you said it delivers it was just pure you know rock'em sock'em entertainment just movie just a movie you know just chomp your popcorn and have a great time i i this movie's 
terrific. We're going to get into the weeds, uh, you know, and we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it. Can I tell you um, a really quick dad movie weekend story? Just a very quick one that I that's think you what guys we will do. appreciate. My dad and I used to, uh, in the summers, we, we would rent a house on Cape Cod, and there were always a few weeks because my mother was a teacher where she had to be back home like prepping for school to start or whatever the case was. So my dad and I would go down on weekends. And I remember one weekend we rented The Godfather, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, The Longest Day, Charade, and Topaz, and watched them all over a long weekend. And like, that is That's big energy right there. Seeing like. The Godfather, <laughs> it, I think I was 11 years old. And he was like, let's go is like, like really like really distinct we didn't leave the couch we weren't making dirt angels but we were like sitting in like the remnants <laughs> of pizza and soda watching like some of the greatest movies ever made and it was like very very special so i understand did the you, boys week did you start that weekend a boy and end it a man <laughs> no, that was go and kill a bear or something later, at the end of it unfortunately like. chris that much later to me. <laughs> Well, let's put some of this stuff in in the context. We were just talking about 1995, which wasn't quite as strong a year as 1994, although we did have some great movies like Crimson Tide that we just did, and we're going to have some great ones coming up. Um, So Die Hard with a Vengeance was released by Fox in the US on May 19th of 1995, directed by John McTiernan, the original Die Hard director, who also produced along with Michael Tadros. It, of course, stars Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, Jeremy Irons, and a stellar Incredible. ensemble cast Incredible. that we're going to talk about in detail in a subsequent section. It was an original screenplay written by Jonathan Hensley that was repurposed into a Die Hard sequel, and we're also going to talk about that in a moment. And on an estimated budget of $90 million, it grossed $366.1 million. It was actually the highest grossing film internationally of huh. 1995. Did it come out in the UK uh, later in the summer? I feel like back then it wasn't as simultaneous, the releases. Sometimes it was a little stagger, yeah. right? Like I remember when when you would go yeah. on holiday, when you could go on vacation to the US, there would be like one of the perks was you'd get to see yeah. movies like maybe a, a few weeks ahead of schedule. That's the um, only perk we over have over the rest of the world. <laughs> you, know, you guys have socialized <laughs> medicine, but we get movies earlier, so it really worked out. <laughs> the, the fun oh, thing fair. about that success, though, is that it was a bit of a disaster for Fox because the only way they could make the financing work on this film was to offer the international rights to another company called Synergy in exchange Mm -hmm. for a big chunk of the budget. And that was because films made more money in America than the rest of the world at that time, apart from Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Andrew Vagina was laughing all the way, all the way to the bank. We're going to we'll get into that, actually. What, what, that brings us quite neatly into our next section, um, where we analyze microscopically. Die Hard the... DNA. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. I was going to, I was going to make sure I was, I, 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 I stole, I, I stole your thunder on uh, Home Alone. I wasn't going to do that again. I don't want to talk about it. I'm still, I slapped my I'm own still, wrist still, many yeah. times. I, I, I don't sleep thinking about <laughs> okay, that. Okay. Well, maybe you need to um, relax a little bit. I don't know if it's that bad. <laughs> um, so the, uh, in terms of, yeah, obviously, obviously the obvious one, this is a direct sequel, but it's really more closely connected to the story of the first film than the second. Bruce Willis is the only um, principal cast member to return with the exception of, anyone know? Come on, children. It's, uh, it's the wife. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, is, it, uh, is it the wife? No, it's, it's McTiernan's staple, Anthony oh, Peck, yeah, who played Al Powell's uh, partner in Die Hard, credited as Young Cop. 
uh, returns here as the as the character of Detective Ricky Walsh. Is he the same? No, character? he's not. He's not the same character. Yeah, Stop doing some that. Some people think um, so. I, yeah, uh, <laughs> I actually want to talk briefly about the Bonnie Bedelia of it all. I can't believe her. Holly, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not her on the phone, right? It's clearly someone else's voice. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't think. Do you even do you even hear? Yeah, the, the, because when he drops okay. the phone, when he realizes that they have to go to north of the border, you hear like John, John, you son of a bitch, mm. or something like that. And I've it's always bothered me that I'm like, that's not Bonnie. Bedelia. If that was Bonnie Bedelia, I hope she got paid a million dollars for like for like two two long. I do I do miss her, and I want to talk about uh, like things that we might miss. Um, the same, obviously, so same director as the original movie, new producing team, Joel Silver, who did the first two movies is out. Andrew Vanya, um, of the aforementioned synergy is in as EP in exchange for those foreign rights that Chris just mentioned. Same composer as the first two films, Michael Kamen, but another new cinematographer in Peter Menzies Jr. Following in the footsteps of Jan de Bond and Oliver Wood, another new editor this time with John Wright who also did Speed, following in the footsteps of Frank J. Urosti and John F. Link for the first film and Robert A. Ferretti and Stuart Baird for the second. Now, this is an interesting one. Production designer Jackson Degovia returns and again utilizes the fictitious Pacific slash Atlantic courier company that connects the Die Hard franchise to the Speed series. Do you know about this, Chris? I mean, I've heard it. <laughs> So basically, <laughs> you're not Phil is what you're saying right now, Chris. You're not, you're not Chris is just like, uh, get a lot. No, you guys can't um, see, but behind Phil, there's just like a Jake Gyllenhaal and Zodiac level bunch of, you know, like charts and graphs and material up on the wall. He's, he's gonna, he's really gonna like figure it out soon. He's so close to unraveling the. the yeah, I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost, I've almost what cracked this it. Podcast is evolving. I'm almost into. cracked yeah, it. I'm but basically. So close. This company, this is the logo on the truck that Hans Gruber and his team arrive in, in Die Hard. It's also on the truck that blows up at the beginning of this film. And it's on the plane that the bus crashes into at the airport in speed. So if you want to know more about that, we did a whole deep dive on it in our Ricochet episode where we did a full explanation of the Die Hard ECU. So we won't get into it more now, but it is interesting uh, to me, if nobody, if nobody else. So now the other thing that a lot of people... I feel like I'm at a staff um, meeting right now. What's happening? <laughs> a lot of people... Um, now, you know, if you've got a passing interest in, in, the die, in Die Hard mythos and, you know, maybe not to the level of nerddom that I take it to, but a lot of people know about the Simon says uh spec script um but the story actually begins um quite a lot earlier than that so what i thought was quite interesting and i'd love to get your thoughts on this because i know you know you're a very diligent journalist chris and you do all you, you do so much research for you know when you've done your shows but so please guys chime in but this script actually started life out of a spec script that was called troubleshooter hmm. by james Hagen. That script was acquired by uh, the original Die Hard producer Larry Gordon's company in 1990, and it featured John and Holly on a Caribbean cruise that was seized by terrorists. Now, apparently, this was part of the their thinking was like it was the towering inferno airport Poseidon adventure paradigm, right? The first one is in a building. The second one is in an airport. And the third one had to be um, on the water. So it was like a rule of three. Mm. That was the that was the idea with that one. W. Peter Eilif, the screenwriter of Point Break and Patriot Games, was brought on board to rewrite it. Uh, but Gordon had all, also already commissioned another script that was set on the QE2 cruise liner that was written by Walter Wager, 
who huh. wrote Fifty Eight Minutes, the the Die Hard, the novel upon which Die Hard Two was based. But both projects were ultimately scrapped because of another script called Dreadnought, Under which Siege. turned into Under Siege. Yeah, I finally know something. It feels so, good. So, and then basically they were, so they had a lot of problems putting this project together. There were rising costs. And as you, you know, you, you're just uh, alluding to, um, you know, the expense of the movie and how they were going to cut up the pie, Willis's salary demands, which had gone up and up. Die Hard 2 was an even bigger hit than the original movie. Um, so Fox president Joe Roth turned to Andrew Vanya to structure a deal with his newly formed company, Synergy. Shane Black was approached wow. to, to do a story. He turned it down. John Melius was hired. <gasps> But that version of the project went nowhere. There's amazing quotes about this where Melia said, "Imagine I mean, a million what would that be like? Die Hard movie. What would that be? Oh my God! Our conservative king makes a Die Hard movie. I want it. <laughs> more Apparently, guns, he more said, guns. <laughs> "I know exactly." He said, "I'm an American advisor on this movie. I'm an American advisor in Laos. Like it's just everything you see through the prism of Vietnam. Yeah. For this, for this, these are direct quotes I've got about Meliusism. So we never found out what his take was going to be. Then Die Hard Two co-screenwriter Doug Richardson was hired, and his script had McLean in L.A. battling cops who were trying to steal from the Federal Reserve using the newly built subway tunnels." So again, some of this stuff is like wow. speed adjacent, both like the troubleshooter mm. premise, which sort of becomes speed two cruise control. And then this one is, which, you know, the, the newly built subways in speed where it was like, you know, integral to the premise of that movie. Then John Fasano of Another 48 Hours was developed a treatment in which McLean's daughter was kidnapped. That sort of has some of its echoes in, in Die Hard 4. So, but this this kind of take your pick approach to scripts w w made Willis really uncomfortable. Apparently, it was sort of like it was almost like you know that that. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And he he was like, this isn't really maybe the best way to approach huh. it. So yeah, to no, regain, I, I, heard, I heard I heard he was turning a lot of them down and saying no. But I think yeah. he was right to turn down all the diehards on a boat because I think by that point people would have switched off a little bit. That, you know, yeah. you say the rule of three, but I think people can suspend their disbelief only so much. And if you're doing building, you know, um, airport boat, I think people might have clocked out a little bit. You know, I think it's also interesting to think about, like, the kind of, like, throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks of the, like, you know, we're past the the purity of the... So, like, we're past the purity period of of, like action movies right like they're continuing to make all this money they're trying to like come up with these new combinations of ways that things work it, it like it feels kind of close to like the superhero era where it's like let's just let's just make a bunch of this stuff and see what sticks and it's like i like the idea that willis was like whoa like let's get back to brass tacks people want mclean people want and this is just me guessing people want a Gruber, like people want to feel like they're watching something in conversation with the original, which is what I think is so successful about this movie is the way it converses with the original movie, including like one yeah. of the greatest reveals uh, of the last 30 years of movies, maybe uh, certainly up yeah. there. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree. And I, I think, I, th I think he was right. And he was very, very protective and thoughtful and careful about this character. I mean, this is, you know, this has always been the role that kept Bruce Willis's career afloat, right. right? We talked about how he would take crazy chances in between the Die Hard movies, and a lot of them failed. You know, Bonfire of the Vanities, Hudson Hawk, you know, and then some of the stranger movies he did in the 90s, like North or uh, Color, of, uh, Color of Night or, you know, Mercury or Rising. Nobody's Fool or, you know, yeah, 
this was all, this was so important to his career. It kind of kept, it was it was like the ballast for everything. So he was right to be very very cautious. So eventually, they kind of lost his mistrust. So then, then you know, the, um, Vanya uh, goes to McTiernan, but he wanted to make Last Action Hero, and then he wanted to make uh, uh, Captain Blood, which was a, a remake of a Errol Flynn pirate movie what? with I don't Arnold know Schwarzenegger. About this. <laughs> so. That project quickly collapsed, despite Schwarzenegger's um, uh, enthusiasm for it. And then enter Simon Says. So Jonathan Hensley, the screenwriter, was a, was, um, a New York guy, former attorney. And he was starting to build a rep as a writer. He'd written several eps of uh, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles mm. and was going to write this movie, Captain Blood, for McTiernan. But that project collapsed and McTiernan asked what else he had. And as luck would have it, he had sold the spec script, Simon Says, to Fox, the studio that owned Die Hard, uh, for a million dollars in 1993. And the script, this was really interesting to me. He was built out of an idea from his own childhood where he'd hit another kid with a rock, um, fortunately without serious consequence, when he was a kid, and obsessed over the idea that this kid would one day return years later to torment him. And that was the sort of genesis of this idea of this kind of revenge element. Huh. And that's why the childhood riddles that are part of the bomber's MO factor in. And the sandwich board scene was in the original script and it focused on this New York cop called Alex Bradshaw. It had echoes of um, Dirty Harry and In the Line of Fire. Those kind of movies where it's like a, a voice on the phone dragging someone uh, right, around right, a city. Right, 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 right. Yeah, have you, I, I, um, I actually read the script for Simon Says. Oh, have you, have love you, to hear this, yeah. Yeah, go, go it's, it. it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, the first half is almost exactly the same, and then the second half is completely different. Um, the dialogue, the action in the first half, but the hero couldn't be more different. Alex Alex Bradshaw, there's a, there's a whole paragraph on what a straight arrow he is. Always gets his taxes on on time. It says he's a moral and balanced man. So it could wow. be more different from John McClane. But obviously, that you know, that's quite a boring central character. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's made more interesting, but but Zeus is exactly the same in his script. Um, I, I think the major change is that there's a sequence where um, Simon goes after Zeus and sends Zeus to an Italian-American neighbourhood where the Italians don't like African-Americans and makes him dress up as a pimp walking around wow. the neighbourhood. Oh, man. Um, so that would have been a pretty big um, sequence in the film, a pretty big set piece. But yeah, the, the, I think what's interesting is Simon Says makes more sense than Die Hard with a Vengeance because the kid, Simon, is, is, his real name is Clarence. And, and when Alex meets him when he's a little boy, uh, Clarence is being uh, beaten up by his racist alcoholic mother. And Alex is friends with black kids and the, uh, Clarence's mother doesn't like that. He hate, she hates African-Americans. And so that's why all the race stuff is in the Simon Says script. It's wow. because Clarence has been brought up a racist. John McClane hasn't. And so, and, and Simon hasn't in uh, Gruber in, in Die Hard with a Vengeance. So that's why there's a, there's a, I don't know, there's a bit of a disconnect. There's some strange scenes in Die with a Vengeance that are quite uncomfortable to watch now. Yeah. That yeah. come out yeah. of a script where it, it was all set up in the first half and, and through flashbacks. And so, well, um, Interesting. I had another yeah, that... bit of background on the, on that that was interest to that point, which was apparently in the novelization by Deborah Cheel. It, it explains that Zeus's brother was killed by cops during a botched raid, 
Um, hence his deep mistrust and hatred of the play. Have you got it there? Oh, wow, you're like two steps ahead of me. I've got um, the novelization here. I'll be honest, I haven't read that. <laughs> I read this, okay. I read this on let's, the let's take a pause and we can start recording again in like five hours just to get like a book report. That would be ideal. <laughs> I'm committed, but I'm not that committed. That would be commitment. Sure, sure, sure. So, but basically, yeah, as you can see, this this had a really kind of quite a tortured road, right? To to you know all of these different fragmented things. The other, mm. th I wonder if you came across this, Chris, because there's there's misinformation out there about this. That at one point, um, Zeus started out in one iteration as a quote. I'm quoting here a Eurasian grocer, and Hensley had Brandon Lee in mind for that part before his passing, which would have. It was was in 1994, well, I think. So, I, I heard you know. Hensley saying about this that when Fox bought the script from him, um, and these are direct quotes, he said they wouldn't. They told him they wouldn't change anything, and then in their first meeting with him after they'd purchased it, they wanted to change everything. And so the things they told him was the Harlem scene has to go, and they told him Zeus has to be white or Korean, mm. and he just lost his mind over this. And had a massive go at them. And so they released him from his obligations to rewrite the script. So he was off the project. But very right. smartly, that's when he mentioned it to John McTiernan, who said, well, this could be Die Hard 3. John McTiernan goes to them and says, I want this for Die Hard 3. And that's how he ends up back on the project, because uh, McTiernan sent it to Willis. But yeah, I wonder if that comes out of the, the demands that Fox were making for changes that they needed uh, made to that script. Well, it's also just interesting to consider, and I hadn't thought about this, Chris, until you mentioned the uh, going to the Italian-American neighborhood and dressing mm. like a pimp, but we're mm. six years after Do the Right Thing, mm. which is such a mm. fascinating exploration of, you know, Italian-Americans in New York versus, you know, African-Americans and the kind of like, and that, I think that movie is one of the great American movies ever made about race, and, and in some ways one of the Agreed. great American movies, but like, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this movie, and I hate to be the guy who's like, you couldn't do this now, but I don't know if the scene in Harlem would play, would be would be in the movie now. And I think that there just might've been a higher degree of tolerance for like racial racialized content in an action movie being so laid bare. And like, you say there's uncomfortable things in this movie, like McLean says some stuff in this movie and Zeus says stuff back, but really it's McLean where you're like, like it is, it is, it really mm. plays with those dynamics in like a frank way that I think are, 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 are a little more challenging than they were then. At least, you know, it feels like it would get, it would be hard to do it now. Yeah. Our hero calling Zeus out for being racist, for not liking white people. Yeah. Yeah, that, exactly. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work in this day and age. And yes, that scene in Harlem, the use of the N word there, it, you know, in a film written by a white man and directed by a white man. I don't know if it plays now. I mean, even if it was just I hate black people was on the board, the scene would work and it would have the same intention. But it just, I don't know. I mean, famously, they they they, they had nothing on the board when they were filming it for fear that there would be an actual riot oh, yeah. and, and, and Bruce Willis would be killed. So that was that was put in using CG, early CG effects, um, that writing. But And there are yeah, nice moments just, in that sequence, like when he walks by the old lady, which is like so painful to watch, right? Like when, when she's just oh, looking at the board. And, and, that, and Willis, yeah. they're both really good in that scene and Willis is, yeah. is good. But like, 
it, you're right. I think the like sort of racial politics and who's making the movie make it a lot more challenging um, than it than it would it, be. It's just that it. It just that it feels quite throwaway because Simon turns out to not be a racist at all. I don't think he's mm. just he's just doing all this for to, to commit a robbery. There was, a, there was sort of a trope in the nineties where, and I, this is something that makes me uncomfortable when I go back to watch films from this era, which is just like, just like characters that are casually racist. For no, you know, every time, and, and this, something will happen, and there might be a conflict. It happened actually in Under Siege Two, uh, a movie that we're going to be discussing next week, and there happened to be an African American character that's confronting like a bad guy, and they're they're going to get into it, right? There's going to be some dialogue before they like fight, and I'm just, pl- I'm got, please don't go there, please don't go there, please don't, and they and they do, and they do yeah, go there. I remember and you're just what like, you're talking it's about. Like, yeah. oh, mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it's so uncomfortable and unnecessary. But I also feel like this is somewhat the Tarantino effect, right? There's a, direct correlation between this film and Pulp Fiction, which, which, and, and, you know, the Tarantino films of this era, especially True Romance. Also, it's in Reservoir Dogs a lot, and it's it's very aggressive in True Romance, and it's even more aggressive to some extent in in Pulp Fiction. Um, Just straight out racist dialogue and racist epithets were just part of weird, like, mainstream movie culture. So it was something that was around in, in movies. But to your earlier point, where I think, why I think it's you could make a case for its defense is that this is a film about the melting pot of New York City and all of the different cultural collisions, collisions with the police, um, racist police. You know, the scene on the on the subway with the overzealous, um, you know, he, the worst thing Samuel L. Jackson has done is like jump the, you know, yeah, the turnstile got, got a ticket jump. and he yeah. pulls a gun, you know, like those kind of things that are just real. So I do, it's looking at the um, problems of, uh, New York City in 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 a kind of warts and all way, but in a way that's very like provocative and and striking. Just to cap this off, and then I want to move on to our, our next section. And I wondered if this had um, come up because you've spoken to uh, Stephen D'Souza, but he they tried to bring him in um, during production because they were having problems, particularly with the third act. And at this time, Jonathan Hensley was actually committed to another movie, Jumanji. And couldn't do uh, work on 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 the production, so they tried to bring in Stephen D'Souza, but he was under contract during Beverly Hills Cop Three, which uh, I think we can all agree is an absolute travesty. Uh, and, yeah, and despite I, his I, willingness I, to dive in, he couldn't do it. Did you, did that I, ever come up? I know, but I think that's a real shame because I have heard Jonathan Hensley talk about the second half of this film, and he's not happy with it, and he's frustrated and embarrassed by certain certain problems that we'll get into. Um, contrivances, coincidences. It's it's sort of it's yeah. almost it, it it comes close to falling apart because of these decisions. And so yeah, it probably needed another going over that that that, that second half. He must he obviously spent years writing Simon Says. I mean, oh actually he wrote it in eleven days in nineteen ninety two. But he had a long time to develop that and then I think they just had to figure out this second half very quickly. And yeah, maybe if someone had come in with fresh eyes, then they could have fixed some of those issues that I think D'Souza really was a bit of a genius at. at that as well. It's like when you when you learn what he did actually on the original Die Hard and some of the intricate uh, threads that he was able to connect, in particular the the iconic um, Gruber McLean Bill Clay scene that was yeah. added during production. D'Souza really was kind of a genius uh, uh, on set rewrites and well, there, figuring an, out some an, of those complexities. There's an ele- there's an elegance, isn't there, to to the way that plot fits together that 
is is sorely missing from the second half of this film. That's perfectly said, actually. Well, that brings us quite neatly to the end of uh, end of this section, and then we'll get into this in a little more detail in our next section, Anatomy of an Action Movie. We'll be right back after this break. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, we're back and we're moving into our next section, Anatomy of an Action Movie, where we explore the tenets. We live in a twilight world. And there are no friends at dusk of an action film. Um, Chris, tenet, uh, thumbs you up, thumbs tenet down? Guy? No, God, no. Oh, boy. Oh. All right, well. God moving no. on. <laughs> God, no. At least, you were just, at least you were honest and not mean about it. Some people are like, you idiots. <laughs> No. Um, okay. So after that tortured path, what we ended up with is the following premise for Die Hard with a Vengeance. So while back working for the NYPD, Detective John McClane is targeted by a mysterious terrorist named Simon, who effectively holds New York hostage and forces McClane to complete a series of deadly puzzles around the city to prevent further attacks. In the process, McClane teams up with Harlem store owner Zeus Carver and together they uncover Simon's true agenda and his real identity. And in terms of the ticking clocks, what's amazing about this film is that there's a ticking clock every five minutes. <laughs> you know, it's not, there's not just one ticking clock, it's just constant ticking clocks, which is, which is pretty cool, as we say, for the first, certainly the first half or, or two thirds of the movie. But the, this, in terms of analyzing this premise, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about evolution versus, um, you know, it, it repetition, right? This is, premise is very different to the other two films. It's a different story paradigm. It's less contained. It's more expansive. Andrew Vanya did have an interesting point about this that I, I thought was, was quite telling. He said, um, Die Hard is a guy in trouble in a box. Whether the box is a building, an airport, or a city, it's still a box, which I thought was quite interesting. But I, I'm going to step back now because I want to get your thoughts on what does this film have to say about sequel evolution? You know, should they repeat the formula? Should they evolve it? This film kind of does both. How does this fare as a premise in its totality in your in your in your minds guys well i think the first half of the film really works as a reinvention of the franchise that 
has got an amazing hook and then delivers on the promise of the premise. I think it, I think it really works. I mean, it, in a way that the, then four and five, I couldn't tell you really what's there about, what's going on there. Um, they get too big almost and they forget what is important about John McClane mm. and it's putting him in these pressure cooker situations. And while we've got an entire city, the situations he put in are quite self-contained. And I think that's where John McClane works best. And I think they lost sight of that in four and five. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's exactly what they needed to do with the franchise at this point. And then maybe they needed to turn back and go back to basics with four rather than, you know, spend more money and have bigger stunts using more computer generated effects. Yeah, I, I think that's always the problem. I was thinking about uh, a, a very particular action franchise that I finally caught up with uh, last week. And I was like, boy, I'd really love for them to go back to the like the 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 simplicity of the first film in this in this in this franchise. Um, and but I agree with you, Chris. I think the first hour and 15 or 20 minutes of this movie are pretty unimpeachably masterful. I think uh, there's a command and a grasp over, I would say to me, the first hour and 15 or 20 minutes of this movie are as good as the original. I think it's, 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 it's really special. I think uh, Willis achieves a kind of wearing of this character in the third, the, this film that he, that he, he masters the character in this movie. Like, of course he's incredible in Die Hard and Die Hard 2, but Die Hard 2 is, so rehashy in some ways and, and happens so soon after Die Hard that you're you're kind of like, OK, like we're with this character again. Um, I think he's incredible in this 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 role here. I think what's really special is the way they sort of toss off Nakatomi Plaza like he's famous for 15 minutes. And I'm fascinated by the decision to make him just kind of like a guy that nobody cares about anymore, I think is really, really special. Uh, the hangover is really important. And, but I want to very quickly, I hope this is quick, reference our last conversation about John McTiernan, Phil, which was mm -hmm. in a little movie called Last Action Hero, yep. which I think oh, is incredible. Yep. And we talked about how, like, for McTiernan seems to be as interested in, like, the milieu of his characters or what his plots have to say about the world. And I think what's so special about the way that this film expands outside of it is it, it gives you so much richness of city place and character i mm. would watch a 10 season show about mclean's precinct i'm in love with graham green in this movie mm -hmm. i'm in love with uh larry brigman as his boss i everyone is incredible um you feel like you're in a real place with real people despite like some of the new york city vibes like the kid was like it's christmas you could still city hall like it, yeah. it's it's absurd but like it is a it feels like a real place in a real milieu and i think jeremy irons and the crew it's incredible it's just incredible stuff so i like how it builds on on the originals like sort of cracker jack one location premise and does this really expansive thing on it What's just occurred to me off the back of what you just said, because I completely agree, is that in in an, in in a crazy way, in a crazy Tenet-like way, nice. it's both a prequel and a sequel to some extent, because we're seeing what McLean's life was like 
prior to Nakatomi. We're seeing like the grind and the, the drudgery and the brutality of like being a New York cop. And these presumably were all his colleagues, right? Now, obviously it's taking place temporally afterwards, but you st it's, it's actually expanding <laughs> our view and understanding of the character. So it's right. actually going in both directions. And because we understand him as a character. You know what's crazy about this movie is it's about eight minutes before McLean gets on the phone with Simon. That is crazy because so much happens in the first six minutes of this movie. The, the, the department store blows up. They find McLean. He's in the van. We know that he's estranged from Holly. We know that he's hung over. We get to know Graham Greene's character. Like, Zeus shows up. They escape barely, right? And, like, mm. there's that great... <laughs> Where it he calls him Jesus. Right? Yeah. I look Puerto Rican to you. Like yeah. we know who everyone is, yeah. and then we get Simon, and it's just, it's just amazing. It's so. I mean, it really is like, uh, uh, yeah, like we've because what's so interesting if you place this in its historical context, this is 1995, and there's now been several Die Hard on a Blank style films, which almost right. forced them, as we discussed with the production history, to be like, hey, look, we just can't replicate the formula, like you just said, Chris. I think you're right. Audiences would have rejected that. Mm. They would have rejected John and Holly on a Caribbean cruise. That might have been fun in 1991. Mm. They maybe could have got it done like right off the back of Die Hard 2, but the landscape had changed. You need needed to reinvent it in some way. And this is such a fresh, brilliant um, way to just expand and open it and dig in deeper on the McLean character. So why don't we talk a little bit about, move into our hero section, and we'll talk about this version of John McLean. How is he different? How is he the same? And how does he compare to the two previous iterations that we've seen in Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 2? Well, I haven't seen Die Hard 2 in a long time, so you'll have to remind me of that. But I guess I like the way that they want to put him at a disadvantage. They want to give him a weakness early on because he is a Superman, really. And so you substitute the bare feet from the first film for the hangover here. And so I guess that puts him on the back foot, although he always seems like he's 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 working with a hangover. So um, I don't know if, yeah. if today is any different to any other day. but um. Yeah, it's funny. In terms of who he is as a hero, I heard uh, that the screenwriter said John McTiernan um, compared him to a cartoon that he'd seen of, what was it? It was a an eagle it flying was, towards a tiny yeah. mouse and the mouse right. is giving the eagle the middle finger. And John McTiernan said, that is John, Mc, John McClane. Speaking truth to power. I love I, that. Yeah, yeah, it's a very funny comparison. Uh, it's called The Last Act of Defiance, that cartoon. It's like quite well, it's quite well known, but I caught that as well. And I thought, gosh, that's brilliant, isn't it? Doesn't that just zero in on what's so important about this character and what Willis was so desperate to protect the whole time? Because apparently he was very concerned um, that he could come across as arrogant or smug or, you know, he was all just too quippy or whatever. And he was very, very concerned about protecting the essence of the character. But because he was always that, because he's always the mouse facing the, this gigantic eagle, we're on his side. And the quippiness and the the sort of um, sardonic humor keeps it, it we don't we, we actually like that right and and to me also that feels very East Coast specific oh as yeah, well dude. right oh yeah uh yeah he's the wisest ass of wise asses you know and I think Bruce Willis is an East Coast guy and this movie is a great East Coast working class movie right so many of the people in this movie are yes. like working class heroes well said, which yeah. is glib and reductive admittedly but like 
I am always impressed by how the movie lingers on the janitor locking the doors or the way the the teachers are getting the kids to sing row, row, row your boat, right? And and the melting pot aspect of New York is so interesting in that it portrays public schools as places where there's like a whole variety of different types of people. Yeah, it's a, he's a great, we, that's a digression, but he's a great East Coast guy and the movie supports his East Coast, why, why, why. you're talking to an East Coast wise ass. Like he is a, East Coast wise ass to the a millionth degree, and I've never really thought about it that way before, Phil. But you're absolutely right that he is. It just that. doesn't. Pl- I mean, you know, when he turns up in L.A., it's like stranger in a strange land, right? California, right? Like mm-hmm. it, the vibe here is very, very different to it to the vibe in New York City, where it is that sort of. It's almost like your armor to some extent, right? Because it's a hard place to live. It's an intense place to live, and especially to be a cop in you know that kind of urban environment. So I think it's it's just such an interesting evolution of the character, and 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 to some extent, again to the prequel point, kind of a devolution. He's an al- he's borderline alcoholic. Um, he's completely estranged and if not now totally divorced from from holly but i, I will also say a psychopath the way he murders yeah. people in this movie yeah. like the whole bit when he's in the tunnel and he's like we got a reports of a guy in a snowsuit <laughs> and then he just murders he just murks those guys he does like, love a, he does love a, a little murder like there's no way he's 100 percent sure that those guys are terrorists like, yeah i know, I know. he just blows he's them just away like, Fuck it. and then that guy the guy who's john who's like are those guys dead and he's like i'm afraid so and you're like you're sick like you're you're ill at this point but i think that that supports like how at the beginning of this movie this guy is absolutely at his lowest yeah his lowest point i mean yeah i mean it's it's just it's incredible that you know he agrees to to put that sign on and go into the streets of harlem like mad bomber or not like well, this i just guy think it's so when you, again, you compare to these other die hard on a blank style movies that we've talked about like look at like jack traven in in speed or casey ryback in in under siege those are guys who have got their shit together like okay, Casey Ryback is in a is in under siege. Has got a lower status job, but he's got he he knows what he's doing. He's and Jack Traven is a really good at his job. This guy's a fucking disaster, right? <laughs> like yeah, he, he actually he, isn't. He's know? a good precursor to later era Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible. Where like you're a fuck up. Like you somehow <laughs> manage to succeed all the time, but you're a fuck up, right? Like, that is integral to Die Hard. I think that yeah. is such a critical part of why these films were, especially the first uh you know the first film and this film we talked a little bit about how in the second one Liam you were like well he's um he's almost too much got his his shit together uh, in yeah, the second one for your liking yeah yeah because you know, he's actually his he's relationship got, like, with nice Holly is good on in the second movie he's like drinking less like it's not as we don't like that we well, like we, we want him drinking you know the roots of this the, the roots of this character fundamentally are the detective right like there's a yes. scene in this movie where he goes i'm a cop and like, no better uh, thinker and figure outer in the late 80s, early 90s in movies than Bruce Willis, you know, looking at the aspirin bottle and realizing what's happening in this movie. You know, he's he's a detective. He figures these things out, whether it's the aspirin bottle in this or it's the last Boy Scout bathroom or whatever. Like, Bruce Willis is a great thinker on screen. He doesn't get enough credit for how mm. smart he makes this character. And, and I think his, like... The thing that's so great about McLean beyond his alcoholism and his rage and his sociopathic behavior is that he's like a detective. He's the detective, right? And the movie never loses sight of that, right? And it it makes it so special. I'd also say as well, you you mentioned Under Siege and Speed. And I think the, the brilliance of these films is you wouldn't watch a drama 
about the protagonist in Speed or the protagonist in Under Siege. Whereas you could watch a drama about John McClane played by Bruce Willis. You wouldn't need action. You could just see his life, yeah. the problems he's got, the you know, the, the, the troubles he's having with booze. And, it, and you, you know, it might, it might be an award season contender. So um, I think yeah. that's what sets these films apart as well, is that he's just such an interesting character. He does so much with so little, as you say, Liam. Yeah. And I Bruce mean, I, Willis is a dimensional actor, right? Even though, you know, even though people like he's a big movie star and an action star, he is also a very dimensional actor. He can play a character that has multiple facets to their life as you, you know, that, and that's why it, he would work in a, in a drama, as you're saying. Um, should we talk about the other hero of this movie before we move on to the villain? Just, just briefly. I think we, we would be, I've just really, you know, we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't talk about Zeus. Um, and you know, what a fantastic addition. You know, yeah. we've lost we've lost several key characters, right? We've lost uh, Holly McLean is not in this. Al Powell is not in this. No Dick, Marco. Dick it's Thornburg. a real problem. No Marco. No, no more Marco. Marco. There's no Marco. It's very no Marco. <laughs> but we've gained um Zeus for one movie though. Or yeah. just for, you know, and what an impact though. Yeah, you I talk mean, about the evolution of the Die Hard franchise and obviously that's the other thing we've not said is that it's it's a it's a solo action hero and it becomes a buddy a bunny movie this time around and who better than pairing bruce willis with samuel l jackson his his pulp fiction co-star and it's funny when i was reading the simon says script uh, when i sorry when i watched the film i was thinking oh they've changed that line and that line because they've seen pulp fiction and and um this feels much more like uh quentin tarantino type dialogue but all of that stuff that samuel l. jackson those samuel l. jackson lines were in the script before they cast samuel l. jackson but the the one difference is uh, Zeus in that original script solves a lot of the problems and saves the day mm. a lot more. But I think once it became a diehard movie, all those jobs were given to John McClane because he's the hero. Bruce Willis wants probably well, the glory. It's interesting, and all you things. know, a moment... A moment that I caught to that to that point, but I think it's sort of it's teamwork though as well, isn't it? Like for example, I love that moment, you know, where he gets because he's an electrician. Zeus is able to figure out how to pull out the wires to to take off the brake locks in that sequence where he's able to spin the car around. So they actually have very and he's able to carjack the that vehicle part is as well. Insane. You that, know, like again, Willis is. I mean, McLean's like, I'm gonna just flip the car around and shoot these guys, and then we're gonna like it's just nuts. Fucking how, rocks. How, like, yeah, rocks. I don't give a shit how, yeah. about physics it's really good it's really good <laughs> like, I, I love that off the rails at that point <laughs> yeah it's very, it really has it re that is actually a metaphor for the movie itself <laughs> right that well, i car. think it's when he shoots wily e. coyote style out of the water tube and samuel jackson is just there that you're like okay yeah, that, it does start to get a little a little crazy you know but one thing i noticed in this rewatch which was probably the 40th uh rewatch is that First of all, Samuel Jackson's very, very important to me. My son's name is Samuel, and part of the reason he's named Samuel is because of Sam Sam Jackson. Like he's just a guy that like really not the only not the only Sam that that influenced that choice, but like a major one for me. I love Samuel Jackson. Uh, I've always another, loved him. He's always been really important. To me. Have you got another mm -hmm. son called Zeus? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's the if, when we have another one. <laughs> not gonna happen. But um, there, there's a moment. He spends the whole movie being like, I, one of my favorite moments in the movie is, you mean one white guy killed another white guy's brother and now I have, like, I'm stuck in the middle of this is really, it's great. He's so, like, clearly defined. But then when he finds out the bomb is in Chester A. Arthur Middle School, mm. there's this great moment where he's like, I'm going to jump down 
to the boat. And McLean's like, you're going to die if you do that. So they they put up the winch, the, the line there. And he's like, I'm the first one who's going to go. I'm first this time. And like, it's small. He's a hero. But he's he, a hero. But he, but, he, but he like answers the call to action. And I think it's a great, third act problems of this movie aside, I think they do a great job of, of Samuel Jackson's arc going from like, being somewhat apathetic or resigned to having to help to like, I have to do something because my nephews are in this school in, um, in Harlem. Right. No, I think he's that that socially conscious, important. right. He, he yeah. cares about his community and his neighborhood. And, you know, he's a great, um, such a great character. It also is interesting. I thought they styled him a little bit after Malcolm X, which I think is also kind of worth oh, noting. That was yeah. a very intentional choice with like the glasses the white shirt and you know he, he's quite formal in his, his in his attire he's awesome and and it was such a great choice as you think to turn it into a pseudo buddy movie and just have that oh yeah i because, think it's, it makes it work i think well mclean doesn't have you know he has al powell on the phone right but mm. for a lot of the first movie it's just him soliloquizing like you know and, and going how are you gonna get out of this john you know on his yeah. own so now you actually give willis who's amazing at repartee as you see in like last boy scout and you know many other movies if he has the right chemistry with another actor it's 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 electric so these two guys together it's just such a treat let's talk about the villain um, Simon Gruber, played by the Imperious. Oh my God, Jeremy Irons. Oh my God, guys. Uh, uh, thoughts? Just top line. Hit me, Chris. I mean, I guess I can't believe that the villain on the other end of the phone was German, and then I didn't clock in the cinema. I didn't make the connection. It feels like you know. What are the chances that in three films, two of them are German? Um. So I, I feel like I don't know how they got that twist over on all of us, but certainly for me, I didn't see it coming. Um, yeah, I think he's a really imperious villain. I think he looks great in that sleeveless blue number. Oh, he hell does. yeah, dude. What's that guy doing for fitness? He looks, it's just, it's amazing. Apparently he was sailboat racing around the world at that point. Really? So he was in incredible shape, yeah. I'm, I'm less comfortable with, I think, the moment where he shoots Zeus, he's eating an egg. And so a hard-boiled egg. I don't egg. like that. So is he, does that like mean that. he's been carrying around a hard-boiled egg in his pocket <laughs> for the, the movie? And that doesn't seem like a very cool thing for a villain to do. Maybe, maybe he had a lunchbox. <laughs> exactly. A little Lunchables. Not he cool. went to like an American, so he went to like an American supermarket and bought some Lunchables. Yeah, you know? I don't like that. But he's yeah, looking, he's in great angel shape. Heart vibes. He's in great shape, which makes, makes me sort of sad that there's not a huge uh, showdown between him and John McClane. Um, because obviously that didn't happen with Rickman. That's fine. Rickman was this skinny guy in a suit, but now you've got someone that I feel like could be McLean's equal, and they, and they, we don't get that moment. And he's well, a soldier as well. There's he a missed that, yeah. opportunity with the McLean Matthias Targo relationship. Matthias Targo is essentially Carl, if we're going to make a Carl, corollary there. And I, I think yeah. that the actor sure. uh, who plays uh, Targo is great. He really stood out to me in this watch. So. Unfortunately, it like doesn't set up their showdown in quite the way that it should. Um, hmm. I it just feel like there's a scene missing. You're right. Like yeah. unconsciously, now you're saying there's it. a it's couple. Like, there's a couple scenes missing in this a con movie. Um, they have a confrontation on the boat, a verbal confrontation, but there isn't. They don't really. Uh, there's a he, he, and that yeah. sort of comes to the ending and the alternative ending that we we can we'll talk about. We can talk about. Well, let's see. Let's talk about it now. Well, it's real quick, up. I just have to say that I think. Jeremy Irons is equal for me to Alan Rickman in the original. I think he's incredible in this movie. 
Um, I, I have a, a softness or a, for this film in some ways that like it, it just really was important to me when it came out. And I love Jeremy Irons. I think he's incredible. I think he's again, you, you cast a, an actor with the experience that this guy has as a, as a real stage actor, they, you give him good dialogue, you keep him mysterious, you let him do this weird stuff with the accent. And, and I think, like I said before, the quick, that the name Gruber mean anything to you, and then the Oof, cut to cheers. Hans, I'm like flying. I'm, yep. I'm in <laughs> space. And the music, and the music. You get a few notes of the when music that as well. happens. Yeah. Like, and the way Ricky goes, like, the thing in LA. Like, it's, that like uh, to be an old man right now, but like no Marvel movie cameo will ever touch the revelation that Simon is Simon Gruber. It's just, it's amazing. It's just because we never we didn't really have that before no, this movie. No, it was a genius choice. Yeah, and it's so it's so effective. And I've yeah I've seen it like twenty times, and I still get goosebumps. My just soul thinking about my that, body, how well guys. directed I, yeah. it is as well. Yeah, well, the guy because, in the back, you know. Yeah, and like the the guy chewing his that shithead chewing his glasses, and the like Sam saying he's from a different agency again that mctiernan uh no trust and authority kind of thing right yeah. i think is, is very it's very so good. cool as well because it's like it's urban and street movie and then it goes like global now like feds are involved and it's yeah. international and this guy was like has a deep history of complicated espionage man it's fucking great it's, yeah. so, it's so good but just to just to touch on that alternative ending because it does feel like that confrontation scene this sort of mano a mano the bill clay scene if you like Mm. is is missing from from this film and they kind of have a version of it in the alternate ending which uh, have you have you guys seen I watched it? it yesterday for the first time i'd love us to post it on the twitter feed because it's mm. really worth seeing it almost plays like an incredible uh short film basically what happens for anyone that's unfamiliar is and this is available on the on the blu-ray in the alternative ending of the film um McLean, uh, Simon Gruber gets away and ends up in some mysterious Eastern European country. It says Hungary in the notes, right, but Hungary? he's not speaking Yeah, I don't Hungarian. think they say, I don't he's, think they say, you don't see it, right? Yeah, You're just in the some other thing is that he's, bar, I think he's in Switzerland. Or cafe, right? Yeah. Some, some mysterious European country. And um, McLean has tracked him down, arrives with a, 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 a rocket launcher, a short, uh, small rocket launcher, of which he's removed the directional sights sits down and basically plays his version of McLean says and gives him a number of riddles. Um, it's a little bit like the Battle of Wits scene in uh, Princess Bride, right? But but played much darker and sinister. And it's sort of, you know, it, it basically he says, you know, you have to press the button and it, it's either going to kill you or it's going to kill me, you know, and, and, he, and it's which way is he going to turn it and fire it? Um, what ends up happening is McLean is wearing a flak jacket and uh, that's how he's he's protected himself and, and Gruber ends up blasting himself with this rocket propelled grenade at like point blank range. It's a brilliantly directed and acted mm. scene, but I gather that the reason they ultimately decided to not use it was that to your point earlier, Liam, it made... McLean crossed the line into true psychopathy. Like it, it made him seem too, I think, cruel and cold-blooded and premeditated mm. rather than a guy that, like you're saying, the mouse fighting the eagle that's just thinking on his feet and always has to survive. And this was a very like, almost like a, a serial killer almost to some extent, but it's a truly brilliant, 
brilliant scene in its own right worth checking out and i think an issue as well audiences might have had when they were testing it is there's a feeling of injustice to it as well because john says that he's been fired he's lost his job as a cop because the feds thought he had something to do with the robbery and so that kind of undermines what you've watched for the last two hours in terms of watching our hero and then finding out he got the blame for the whole thing wouldn't wouldn't you wouldn't be leaving the cinema with the same sense of satisfaction i don't think it yeah. also doesn't cut out of, look, maybe there would have been a different scene, but it doesn't cut out of, when, when it cuts away from him looking at the aspirin, he grabs Zeus and suddenly we're north of the border and we have our final confrontation. Like, one of the great things about Die Hard is it respects this idea of like time and place. These films take place not in real time, but over a 12 hour period, right? Like I spent the first minute and a half watching that scene between Irons and Willis being like, how long has it been? Where are we? What's happening? Like it it just wouldn't, it would need like a different scene leading into it where like he's gotten away and Willis calls Holly and like he looks down and he sees the aspirin bottle and it cuts back to him. And then it like as a slow fade, like it just doesn't cut with feels the way like a the Bond rest of the film. movie feels more like a Bond film. Mm. Totally, know? yeah. Or like just a different style of movie, and like I don't know the ending. Yeah, the ending isn't really justified unless like Simon kills Holly or something like that, which would be such like a depressing way to end. Yeah, the it's series. almost like it's on. It's like a personal revenge mission to do something really, really sadistic mm. as well. Like and go really, really. Also, out of why your would way. they fire him? Because they yeah. thought he had something to do I mean, with I the robbery. That's that's what he said. That's tells. right. But that doesn't make sense, no. right? It doesn't no, it, it doesn't uh, work. I mean but Jonathan Hensley said that they had cool. they had real problems with the ending. So in, in the original Simon says script, the ending happens in Battery Park in Manhattan. And it's a big fight. It's oh. a showdown between hero and uh, the two heroes and the villain. Oh, I love that. Uh, Cl- uh Simon Clarence uh, gets stabbed and then Zeus saves um, the hero Alex by grabbing the bomb and throwing it in the water, and then Clarence, because he's been stabbed so quite seriously, runs towards it and jumps into the water and blows himself and the bomb up as he's falling back into the water, which is fine. But there was an he wrote another before they got to the ending they ended up in. There was another ending for for with a vengeance as well, where the there's no stuff in Canada, the boat explodes, you've got John and Zeus paddling to shore. With with Zeus saying it's a shame the bad guys got away, uh, but the briefcase bomb ends up on Simon's plane. So and John says, "Don't be so sure." So Simon, it cuts to Simon huh. on the plane. He sees the bomb, huh. and then he says, "Anyone got a four-gallon jug?" And the plane explodes, which is a right. Ru- I read mm. about this. That's a rubbish line, but that's what Jonathan Hensley wrote. Um, I don't think they shot that version. But they just couldn't figure out how to end this film, and I think what they ended up with yeah. does it. It feels tacked on. It definitely is like a. It, it reeks of reshoots, right? The the helicopter um, sequence at the end, and I do like that. I don't know why, but I really love that sign, that neon, sure. that neon sign. That's like Nord. There's something really kind of iconic and cool about about that. But the sequence does feel like a rush, a bit of a rush job, like. Uh, 
um, this will this will have to do kind of yeah, thing. We just need to get it this cuts in theaters really now. weirdly, and like they yeah. clearly shot coverage with Iron separately from at least to me Willis. Like they don't feel like they're in the same place at the same time overall. Except it does have the great "Hey dickhead, did I come at a bad timeline?" Which is like one of the great uh, asshole lines from the series. It's very good. Well, what I also thought was really interesting, and and McTiernan's commentary of the film is is actually quite self critical, and there's a point in it where he nailed, he said, this is the point where the film goes wrong in my, in his opinion. And it's the moment where it reveals that the bomb that's in, you think is in the school, right. Is actually harmless. And the real bomb is on the boat that McLean and Zeus are on. And, and McTiernan says, he says, I think that was just one, one twist too many. And you almost lose the audience's trust at that point, because they're, they're, you're almost like, um, when's what's real and what isn't now? We we invested a lot of suspense and tension in that school bomb situation, and there's got a fantastic actor there, Charlie, I think, right, who's the bomb disposal guy who no, I love, love guy. you love him. He's, he's so great. courageous, I'm and staying. you know, oh, you love that character, and you almost feel like, and he's been made to look a fool by by it, you know. So there's, I, he, he basically was like, that's the the point where the film kind of unravels. I'd hate it. to agree with our Shakespearean disagree with our Shakespearean king, but I I think he's absolutely wrong about that. Like I actually okay. think that is like classic Gruber stuff. Like it's a misdirection, it puts everyone's attention on something else. Like and also one of the things that's great about the Gruber family, which oh, that would be <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch that show. <laughs> but one thing that's great about the Gruber family is they're not psychopathic, right? Like they're not actually ideologically sound, right? Like this movie does the same thing where he has the rehearsed speech about the excesses of the West and how we have to blow up the gold. But of course he's really taking the gold. He's not going to kill kids in a school. Like that's just not he's something he's going to make people he, think he's going to do it, but he's not going to. But Liam, like, he's that he, is so out of character. He's just killed kids in a department store and he's just killed kids in a station, so or tried to. So he is a monster. Yeah. <laughs> he said he's not a monster, but he is a monster. Right. I see what you're saying. Well, I suppose I it's like collateral damage as opposed to like a specific so going out your way yeah. to yeah. like target them. But what you've just said about the Gruber family, just I, I just suddenly had this idea for an August Osage County style drama oh about Set the, the Grubers. Germany exactly, exactly. About Hans and Simon and what and the was the dad, parents like, like. for the government and makes no money. Yeah, it'd be amazing. It's I like need to the go lives write, of others meets I need August to go write that County. play yeah. right now. I think it, yeah, uh, a play. That's where the money is, Phil. Make yeah, a play. Yeah, that about, and podcasting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the, the screen, well, I'm a playwright and a podcaster. The, the screen I did say as well that, he, that, that an issue with the, the 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 climax was the geography of it all was having the gold so far from the schools and that Bruce Willis had an issue in terms of why would John McClane be going after gold when there's children to be saved on the other side that's of town. A good, that's a good point. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I, it doesn't, it, not 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 on the other side of town. Forty minutes north of the yeah. city, right? Like it's you know like. There is something I really like that they end up, this is so specific, on the Saw, Saw Mill River Parkway, which is like a treacherous road to drive on. So the fact that that's the choice they make is good. But yeah, it's like, it falls apart geographically. The first yeah. part of the movie is so geographically sound, but like they keep going further and further north and they take this aqueduct. But no, I think you're dead on. Like he would be trying to find the bomb. Because the it's school. kind of like, look, who cares if they get away with the gold? Leave them alone. 
then. Yeah. If there's no hostages at mm. risk, like there are in Nakatomi Plaza or at the airport or in Holly's plane in Die Hard 2, then the stakes aren't quite the same. Of course, there's a sense of justice. This guy's a monster. He's a, you know, he's a murderer. We have to get him. Yes, that that, that you can root for that, but not to the extent of if, yeah, if you think there's a school of children that are under threat. But, but let's move on. But before we do, I do have one question for you guys, which is one of my favorite questions. As to you ask were going to St. Ives, you met a man with seven wives. <laughs> it's not a riddle. It's not a okay. riddle. It's who's your favorite terrorist? Who's your favorite terrorist? Do you have a favorite terrorist amongst the, the goons in Simon's squad? Yeah, I, I hadn't seen this film in Donkey's Years. And one of the main things I remembered from it was Katia. So I would have to say mm. her, even though watching it now, she's barely in the film. I'd forgotten that she's essentially mute. She doesn't speak. So I was quite surprised watching it that, that she's because her her mannerisms and the way she kills that guy had imprinted on me. That it's one of the first things I think of when I think of this film. So I've got to go with her. It's a good choice. Uh, yeah, that that is burned into my brain forever. I, I want to very quickly say, and then I'll answer this question, that McTiernan at, is at his most powerful as a filmmaker from the moment Simon walks into that bank and the da 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 kicks. Like that is like McTiernan yeah, I agree. is symphonic. It like again, my soul leaves my goddamn body the way he stages this sequence. It's mm -hmm. like it's mm, chef's kiss, and that part of it, the dread, the sneaking dread as she like slides in through the gate, and like that that poor sap defending gold. Run away, you idiot! Yeah. Run away! It's not your money. Um, but my choice is Rolf, played yeah, by I had him on Robert the list. Sedgwick, Love brother it. of Kira Sedgwick. Um, Is that right? Wow. Yeah. The one who is like, he pretends to be the cop. And then he says in German, like, McLean is here. I love that guy. He he's really, great, isn't he? he's really good. I wish he was in more of the movie. I also love, this is like, I think classic uh, McTiernan, um, you know, with the way the SWAT team guys uh, cut their fingers on the way in. I love that the cop, the fake cop, the German guy won't uh, take, put the bomb in the car because he doesn't yeah. want yeah, it's, it's really good. What if some kid could get it? Yeah. Rolf goes like some kid could find it. Yeah, and like, yeah. I like that mirroring of, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, Chris, that like the, there's a psychopath, you know, uh, Simon's a psychopath, but like, I like that the, they're just terror. They're not, monsters these guys mm. i think it makes it a little and well, in the fact thieves. like they're thieves. they're thieves and like in fact they kind of like Otto, the hungarian murderer they're kind of like ah he's one of targo's thugs like there's this little bit of tension because like they don't make they don't paint these guys as one-dimensional i think they do yeah. a nice job and i i just really like robert said let's have a 10-part series about rolf on yeah, Netflix. let's do it. Let's do it. The, the Muppet from the Muppets, not not the guy from this movie. We should uh, we should make a, a difference there. All right, let's move. Let's move on. To, um, do you have a the action in this movie is is pretty great, especially for the first um, uh, two thirds. Do you have a favorite moment? Do you have a favorite action sequence, set piece, or or stunt? I think it's pretty great when a guy gets sliced in half by a cable. <laughs> Just That's in general. This podcast, this <laughs> yes, right? but what about the what about the what about the stunts? <laughs> yeah, that, I'm I'm going with that, Liam. That's pretty amazing. If 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 uh, if a good example of like lucky, lucky, lucky third act screenwriting. Uh, for me, it's the moment I just mentioned the the heist of the uh, of the um, of the Federal Reserve is just like so exquisitely staged and amazing. I also think. Um, 
the 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 opening into the explosion while not technically an action scene is just an amazing montage of of New York in the summer and gets it right um and i think the subway platform all the action's yeah. good but the subway explosion is particularly particularly strong. What, what I don't like the though, chase is, is it, great too. The taxi chase, the taxi chase is amazing. Mm, yeah. What I don't like is yeah. the, is the flood in the tunnel when we see John sort of surfing on top of the truck because that's a glimpse at it's what to cut what's to come in this franchise that sends yes. it off the rails when we're seeing a sort of almost animated version of 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 Bruce Willis on top of a truck. It just does not look real. And what we like about these movies, I think, is they feel real and we feel like we're watching real people doing real stunts. Chris, I, I feel very safe uh, with you, so I'm going to admit something that I don't know if Phil even knows, which is I've never seen Die Hard 4 or 5. Mm. I've never... I uh, mean, I, I would say... I, I like Die Hard 4, by the way. Do you? I do oh, like okay. Die Hard 4. Yeah, I, I don't. You're right, Chris. It's I don't. I, I feel it's like it's when I tell... Vibes. It, it's vibes. I feel like it's when I tell people not to watch Godfather 3, you know? I don't think you need it. I don't think you need it in your brain. I don't think mm. they feel like. I, I once said to a friend, um, "Just <laughs> I haven't seen Rocky Five, and he said, oh, "I'm so jealous." Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Of that reason. Yeah, yeah. It's right? Rocky like, Five is exactly you, you the wish same. Wish you could unsee it, and you know. And I think they feel like almost fan-made films rather than, mm. and, and, and 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 maybe well Bruce said. is phoning it in a bit, or it's. I feel like this is the last time we see John McClane. That's how that's how I feel about those two movies. You're totally right that that is the moment where it it changes almost tone. Um change change it goes from a grounded movie that's that could happen even if it's outlandish and and almost over the top mm. to something that just straight up couldn't happen, right? Which it's almost it, it's not quite Escape from LA bad, but it's not far off. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're heading in a very dangerous mm. direction there. Escape with Escape from LA is good. Um, look, here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know what that was. I, Are you all when right? We started, when we started this <laughs> podcast, I was like, you know what? Now's the time. I'm going to do it. Because I remember seeing the trailer for four and it was like, on July 4th, the choice will be clear. And I was like, nope, I'm not in. This is not my thing. I I, I pulled up uh, four on HBO Max and I made it 10 minutes in. I was like, uh-uh. This is just like, until I have to, dutifully, for the podcast, I just couldn't, I couldn't make it happen. So yeah, again, it goes back to, can you look at these films as standalone action films or as sequels, which sometimes can three, be a different you can. thing first, excuse to me, do. Die Hard 2 and Die yeah. Hard 3 really rock. You know, problems with the second half of this movie aside, it's incredibly watchable and, and I like it, you know, more now than I, than I think I have in a long I time. think you nailed it, Chris, that that is the point where it does become something different and by that point in the film although that tunnel sequence is is like spectacular and original and really wild imagery it starts to become a little i think almost cartoonish superhero and, stuff. And, and, and yeah it's, and it's sandwiched between these moments that i was i was mentioning earlier alluding to with where it first when john clocks the badge number because he's asked to had that lottery conversation earlier on that's too big a coincidence and then the phone service going in and out when they need it and when they don't need it. Too convenient. Zeus's nephews being in the school, the last school that's being targeted, too much of a coincidence. And then ending with the aspirin bottle. It's like they've got four, four convenient coincidences. I think you can get away with one, maybe, but it's just 
Yeah. It's not good the, writing. Too many and too close I'm going to push back, though, because maybe. I think the 6991 badge thing, sure, fine. But I, it's a great example of McLean as a listener. And an I, liked, accent, I, right? I like that I like personally. That. I thought and that was also, cool. I think the bomb is planted after Zeus gets involved because it arrives at 1030 in the morning before the kids, after the kids get to school. And there's the implication is uh, he sent the bomb there to get. Zeus's attention. They say that later in the movie. Oh, did so they? I hear you. I've, I, yeah, I've he got says, that like, wrong then, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. It's, it's very intentional that the bomb arrives at that school after Zeus gets involved. Good and shout. then the, the, I'm not trying to, look, I'm not here to defend what I think largely I agree with, but the third thing is the, the aspirin bottle works for me because it's, again, McLean being like, oh, shit. Like, and actually what doesn't work is when it gets explained in the alternate ending where he's like, I tracked a bottle to a pharmacy down the street. Yeah. Like, that's stupid. But McLean being like, wait a minute, this bottle is from Canada. I have a hunch. This means something feels like very in line with the McLean McLean, But it's almost like to... Simon Gruber may have just ha handed him his business card with his address on it. Right, right, <laughs> you know, right, 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 it, right. it just, it feels like, that's I think- fair. Totally, it does Gruber totally. a little disservice to be like this criminal mastermind makes such a sort of cavalier error, but, you know? But they do an amazing job of setting up his migraines. Like the, that in that scene, you, you miss it. You miss it if you're not paying attention where he's like, you know, the only thing we know about him is that he suffers from migraines. And then McLean's like, excellent report. Like they do a good job. Again, it's like McTiernan working with Hensley, the dramatist. Being like, let's lay these little foundations for something that's going to matter later, I right? I mean, I like, think the final sort of my my final thought on it, and we'll move welcome on. to Phil's final thought. Phil's final thought is the first two thirds of this movie are so fucking good that I can forgive Where does everything it fall else. Apart for you, Where's, everything what's else. What's the moment? What's the moment? And I agree. I mean, I think the boat, once it gets to that boat stuff, just the energy of the movie is pulling you in a different direction. Then then the tunnel, then the physics of the tunnel sequence, mm. and then the the final helicopter thing is then it's completely just doesn't, it's, just feels like something from another film. It's when the Simon Says extent. script ends, to be honest. It's when it's when it veers right. away from Simon Says. Yeah, you're right. Well, the, the, no one could crack this. The best minds in Hollywood, maybe Stephen D'Souza could have, but, you know, we, we will we'll never know. But regardless. at it. Regardless, it's the, the first part, the bits that are th this that do work are so good that they compensate for the stuff that is imperfect. Yeah, and you have pretty unpeach unimpeachable work from Jeremy Irons, Bruce Willis, Samuel Jackson, and like McTiernan always yeah. knowing what to do with a camera. No you matter like it's, what it's, the story is. You don't happens. feel unsatisfied even though there's, the last act doesn't really work. That's how I, good the first two yeah, thirds are. You're right. You know? And I remember talking to a friend after it ended, him being like, the helicopter bus stuff, like literally the day Yeah, you don't it remember opens, it. <laughs> he was like, the helicopter stuff sucks. It's bad. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like I could, I didn't have the critical faculty then. Right. I was like, that's pretty much the best movie I've ever seen, which was my mentality around every action movie that came out in the summer. Like, Face Off ended, and I was like, that's the best movie ever made. Like, I have a very distinct memory. Take of, us of, back. Yeah. Right, let's get our um, tuxedos on okay. and head to the Die Hard Wait a minute, Oscars. the humor. This movie's really funny. We'll come to that in... Oh, your best I was going to skip yeah, it because we're going to cover sorry. it in Best Line. Okay. Yeah, so, you're right. Sorry. Um, let's, uh, let's pop sorry the old tuxes for... on. Um, I'm just trying to keep things trucking along. I don't want to have the same third act problems. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, the first award is the John McClane Yippee Award for Best Line, of which there are very few nominees. I've got five here, but feel free to add. Um, the old, uh, said, simple Simon to the pieman going to the fair. Give me your pies 
or I'll cave your head in. I rather enjoyed that one. That's good. Um, this line, as you said, Chris, is actually in the uh, Simon Says original script where he says he didn't say, hey, Zeus. He said, hey, Zeus, my name is Zeus, as in father of Apollo, Mount Olympus, don't fuck with me or I'll shove a lightning bolt up your ass. I love that. And that was in the original Hensley yeah. script. As just, much as I it feels like a Sam Jackson yells, improv. Do I like look Puerto Rican to you? It's like <laughs> pretty like <laughs> yeah. tops. Samuel it's great. That's, that Puerto stuff Rican is great. Like it's great. It's so good. Shades of get these motherfucking snakes off this motherfucking plane yeah. in this movie. It's coming. You can feel it. One. This is my favorite is uh, when when they're driving the cab through Central Park and he says, "Are you aiming? Are you aiming for these people?" And McLean says, "No." <laughs> well, maybe that maybe mime. That, mime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was laugh out loud. I actually la- like yeah. cackled watching it yesterday. Uh, hey, who was the twenty first president? Go fuck yourself. So that the carjacked guy that yeah, just stole good. the car. That was such a New York moment to me. Yeah. You know. And then the last one that I loved was the where, where he goes, you're a truck driver? And he goes, no, I'm a beautician. Of course I'm a truck driver. <laughs> I have to tell you guys. He's amazing, My dad laughed for five minutes in the movie theater at that line. Like, I will never forget the way my dad lost it. Like, could not recover. Like, like, to the point where people in the movie theater, it's like, is this guy okay? He could not stop. No, I'm a beautician. Of course I'm a truck driver. Like, it was just incredible. The dialogue's great in this yeah. movie. So any picks from those or auditions? I'd go for the Hey Zeus line because that was mm. the one I couldn't believe they didn't rewrite that after they'd seen Pulp Fiction saying we need more lines like that in the movie. The fact that that was in there in 1992, um, it's, it's, a, it's a funny line and it's, it's good for character. So, and it made me laugh. So, It's a beautician line for me. Gotta, gotta give it up. Bill Billingham yeah. laughing for five yeah. minutes is a, <laughs> is a pretty important moment. Oh, I love that. Um, all right, let's move on to the Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for stealing the film. Now, I'm excluding our three leads this week because good. I want to talk you about... You always do that, and uh, you always include them, and it's obnoxious. Well, I, I want to... So I want, yeah, I want to... Um, I've taken your, your critique there. And uh, just fo- so we can talk about this incredible ensemble cast, especially the unit uh, in the NYPD. So I've got the following nominees. Graham Greene as Joe Lambert. Colleen Camp as Connie Kowalski. Larry Brigman oh as God. Inspector Walter Cobb. Kevin Chamberlain as Charlie Weiss, the bomb disposal expert, and Joe Zaloom, who we just talked about, as Jerry Parks, the truck driver with an aptitude for trivia. I'm going for I'm going for Sam Phillips as Katia. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Because fair, it yeah. stuck with me, and then doing my research uh, this week, that's the only acting role she ever did. She was a, she's a singer. They cast a very successful singer as a character who doesn't speak. And then she was done with acting and she, she looking her up, she did all the music for Gilmore Girls. That was her big career move after this and the theme tune to Gilmore Girls. So, oh, so she didn't have to act. No, she, she doing had, fine. She had a big album at the time she was casting right. this um, that had won Grammys and things. So yeah, for some reason, I think that character's really stuck with me. So that, I would say that stole the, the movie because it stayed in my brain. Fair. Um, do you guys remember when Bong Joon-ho won the Academy Award for Best Directing for Parasite? And he gives this incredibly moving speech where he references Scorsese and he talks about Quentin Tarantino. But at the end, he goes, if I could, I'd like to take a Texas chainsaw and split this award into five pieces and like give it to all of you. Mm. That's how I feel about your list because I can't pick. I think maybe... my. Maybe this is the best... This, this is the most stacked this award has ever been, in my opinion. And like I'm yeah. not joking. I'm like... 
moved by how good the five people are in this movie. It's like action movie perfection for like this is what I want from from any piece of entertainment that's like this is to be like I know who all these people are. This is you know, we've talked before about how action, good action movies are about smart people doing their jobs, and everyone in this movie is a smart person doing their job, and, like, I love it. I think it's really good. Quick little shout-out to the phone operator lady who has the now-should-be-canceled line, yes. I'm gonna marry Donald Trump, but that's the only other person I wanted to reference when talking about this. I think that that's a great list. They all deserve it. Um, special kudos to Colleen Camp for just being absolutely incredible with I love her. She's yeah, amazing lo- love, in this movie. love her and I agree amazing ensemble. My pick for the record even though I love all of those guys and uh, Katya who's actually not uh, she's American, right? Is what she's not yeah. Eastern European or yeah. or anything, right? So and yet she seems to convey that somehow. It's an amazing p- performance. Um but Larry Brigman as Inspector Walter Cobb would be my choice. And you know what you know one of the reasons I l- so he's an interesting guy just real quick. He was in the soap opera As the World Turns for a really really long time. So he was a soap guy, but was also a really at the same time a distinguished stage actor. And uh, later got huge acclaim for uh his role as the judge in David Mamet's Romance. Um wow. which I saw at the Almeida with John Mahoney in that in that part. So he's done, and then he was in Spy Game. I have some incredible scenes in that with Redford. But the reason I love him so much in this, you know what? It's like, to your point, and this is, film is very, is like kinder to cops in, in, the, in the way that Die Hard, the original, isn't, right? It's generally, they're all almost all idiots except for Al Powell and McLean, right? right. These guys are actually, you say, they're competent at their jobs. They're not idiots like um, Dwayne, you know, uh, Dwayne Robinson and the FBI agents and, and whatnot, right? But it's the moment when he goes to the school and he's introduced to like the principal. I think her name's Principal Martinez. Yeah. He's, he's like, this is Principal Martinez. He's like, hello, Principal Principal Martinez. And he treats her with, he like speaks formally to her, shows her so much respect because it's like, this is her domain, right? He could right. just be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We're fucking doing this and there's a crisis. But it's like, he's so believable as a like, consummate professional in a high pressure situation that i think he's like fantastic as the uh, as the um inspector in charge of that unit so he'd be my pick for that um the dick thornburg award for dick of the movie um handful of nominees a few new york dickheads uh the business guy who refuses to let zeus use the phone on the subway uh, yeah, <laughs> played by ralph buckley the overzealous transit cop who pulls a gun on Zeus for just jumping the styles, played by Scott Nicholson. Um, the condescending cab passenger, uh, he's credited as business guy taxi, played oh, by Bill sucks. Cux. What? You don't um, like white people? <laughs> I feel like that should have been played by JT Walsh as well. Like yeah. if he was oh. still, I don't know if he was, you're like, that's such a JT really, Walsh part. That would part. really tilt the uh, Master Thief award. <laughs> yes, JT yeah. Walsh showed up for three lines in the movie. Uh, <clears throat> and the obnoxious shoplifting kid who you quoted it's earlier. <laughs> so I've got those four uh, picks, thoughts. The guy on the Folks. phone. The guy on the phone. Uh, just annoying. That character is always annoying in a film, the person that won't get off the phone. I guess it doesn't exist anymore That's in movies true. because we don't use those phones yeah. anymore. But like, yeah, I find that. Yeah, this is a great payphone movie. This is a great payphone movie. Uh, besides Phone Booth, one of the best. Um... Uh, it's the shithead cop. Why are you pulling a gun on a turnstile jumper? Like, that's yeah, it, that's, I think it's great. So that, I think it's great. That's like... What's interesting about that, Liam, is that um, in the script, that was an older racist cop, and it was John McTiernan who said, let's 
recast it as a young nervous cop so it's like it could be his first day on the job and he's just overzealous um interesting i mean he still seems a little bit racist but yeah he is he is you, does you he, <laughs> he, but he does look nervous which is something that mctiernan right. added that i think makes that a, a little more interesting and less of a cliche it's way more nuanced. No, I totally agree. And and I think it's also just like, I think that again, like as a kid watching it, I don't think I was aware at all in my sort of like my, the way I grew up. But I think, you know, considering that it's a couple years after Rodney King, all these things, like it's a really powerful, potent moment. And I think McTiernan like does it, does it justice. It's, it's, it's really, really good. I love it. All right. Well, let's move on to our final category of the Oscars, which is best death. And we've already touched on this uh, a little bit, but we're just before I move on to it, is Marco in the house? <clears throat> is Marco backstage? Turn your, turn your headphones down. Okay. <laughs> no more table! Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Thank you, Marco, oh, sorry, for Chris. presenting this Thanks. award. <laughs> yeah. I'm retiring um, from the podcast after doing that. That's <laughs> you it. have to bring him back for a Die Hard movie. Um, all right, so I've got Katya's slicing and dicing of the Federal Reserve Guard, mm. McLean shooting the guy's uh, point blank range on the elevator, Jesus Christ, um, the cable slicing the guy in half on the boat, uh, McLean disabling the brakes and spinning the Mercedes around to shoot a bunch of bad guys on the wet road, and McLean taking out Simon's helicopter. Some pretty good deaths when you actually have like five to rank. Because some of these movies, I'm like, I'm struggling. You know, I'm going to struggle next week with Under Siege 2. <laughs> well, that's all right, because we're going to talk about Eric Bogosian. Yeah, that's for just going to be minutes, an Eric so. Bogosian conversation for two hours. <laughs> anyway. Do you want to, do you want to go um, first, Liam, with this one? in the present. Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, I'm going to go with um, the guys in the, uh, on the, in the elevator, because I think that that scene is amazing. Um, I've rewound, I, I don't know what this says about me, but when he leans into the guy and blows him away, and he just basically explodes all over McLean, like that moment is like so incredibly well staged um i also think um uh this uh totally gets ripped off uh by uh the russo brothers yeah. for uh captain america the winter soldier yeah. like it's uh and it and it which i think that's a good scene too but like this th this is an iconic moment um for a variety of reasons and like the idea of like uh an outnumbered guy in an elevator um this this movie kind of like defines that i think to some extent you just said everything that i was going to say um but yeah, I'm, 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 in, I'm in total agreement. Um, uh, that, you know, that would probably be my favorite action scene. I mean, I do feel like I don't 100% understand how it works, how he does what he does in that space physically. And if mm -hmm. everything's going the right direction, because it's shot at quite close quarters. And I guess the Captain America version, it's much clearer what's happening and how he's doing it. But John McClane's much more interesting than Captain America. So that this is the better scene. Yeah, I totally agree. Hey, Phil, who's the um, guy who plays the um, cop who, uh, like, brings him to the elevator? It's shades of the guy who plays the security guard in the first Die Hard. Those moments actually, like, really click together for me, him entering the building. But that actor is great. Is he the um, one? Because I was going to say Detective Otto, the isn't it? Like, he's just so convincing as, like, I'm just a guy that works here, you know? Is it the, the sort of... A tall blonde guy. Yeah, the, the yeah, Aryan yeah. looking dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because I was going to say earlier, I feel like that the moment to your point about when the symphony clicks is when it pushes in on his the badge and you realize it's the Federal Reserve. And that yeah. is just when all the orchestra is like, you know, you know what moment and... I love 
is the moment when the guy, the security guard that actually works there is chewing gum and he looks down and he notices that everyone's wearing these like combat boots. Oh, yeah. And he kind of yeah. goes like, huh? and you're like, oh, that's like a young McClane. There's like shades mm. of a young McClane in this amazing character. stuff in Yeah, in, just kind of really like, is huh. great. Like he notices and he notices too late to do anything about it. Also, great line. I think we'll move straight to the withdrawal. That like great, <laughs> that great Jeremy Irons doing the weird version and of his actual accent about the way the gun that he's holding in that thing, which is like a, the Gruber gun. It's like yeah. a smaller James caliber gun, gun. you know? A, yeah, it looks like PPK. a Walther. Yeah, and exactly. there's something that felt so Hans Gruber about that. Mm. You know what I mean? Is a withdrawal. Oh, it's love like it. so. Yeah, it's, I sound like I have a, a, a lisp or something, but like he does it really well. God, my pick right. for the record would be the disabling the brakes moment just because I love how out of control the like the film is at that point and I think that's a genuinely again like in screenwriting those are the kind of like creative action sequences that like put your script over the top that that's like I've never seen that you know it, and it's just rugged and awesome and wild and crazy and in keeping with the kind of mad energy uh, of the movie at that point. So that would be my pick. Um, let's take a short break and then come back for our final section of the show, the Double Jeopardy Trivia Quiz. We'll be right back. And we're back with our final section of the show, which is the Double Jeopardy Trivia Quiz where the scores can really change. Now, Chris, <sighs> I remember the halcyon days of Tilly Trivia because mm. you were you're quite the trivia trivia king and um, i've often thought like liam hates this i like it some of the, the listeners seem to like it they want to keep it but i think trivia quizzes is it a british thing why are we why are we so obsessed with them we love them don't we we love a little quiz we call Clash them the yeah we actually love yeah quizzes. we call them pub yeah. quizzes you call them trivia nights uh, at the pub yeah. and i think they've taken off i don't know yeah i i, I mean you say in titty trivia you're just saying i'm a geek basically and I guess no. I guess I am. But the podcast I used to do, Clash of the Titles, <laughs> we would do a quiz where we take it in turns to compete. And then I realized I found the competing too stressful. So I just became the host of the quiz every week so I wouldn't have to compete. And the other two did. And so they hated doing the quiz. And I enjoyed it. And I feel like that's what's happening here. <laughs> yes, that's probably right. It is more fun to be on the other side of it to possibly so maybe I, I wouldn't you know maybe if i was in liam's shoes maybe you should do that sometime you can get your own back on me well it's just always like you know in this case it's like guy who loves quiz and a film history expert so i'm sitting here like cool i'm sure i'm gonna get the question right about the second ad on die hard of the vengeance or whatever the case is gonna be no no i i enjoy it this is it's a little bit of a shtick my uh my dislike of it of it i like it when i get them right well do you guys want to speaking to that point do you guys want to collaborate or compete today which I'll, is Chris's i'll do whatever choice. liam wants let's collaborate okay. Yeah. No, I think that'd be nice. And it sounds like you're not a competitive guy like me. I'm not competitive at all. I'm too competitive. Uh, no, I'm not super competitive with this. All right. Well, you guys oh, so can work collab. together. You can do let's the work together in McLean the spirit of the team exactly. up aspect of this movie. Exactly. All right. Question number one, guys. So three questions and you get a clue if you need it. Um, question number one. John McTiernan turned down the opportunity to direct another threequel in a major franchise to make this film. Which 1995 box office smash did he turn down? Oh. This was in the Wikipedia. <laughs> I haven't read the Wikipedia. Uh, 95. 
clue. Call Al. Call Zeus. All right. Go to gonna, Zeus's store. Gonna, <laughs> you're going to phone a friend. Okay. You're going to call yeah. Zeus. All right. I'm going to call Simon. Um, there is another clue I could say, which is uh, you. this has come up in today's conversation. The film starred Val Kilmer and had a hit song by you. Oh, YouTube. Batman Forever. Batman Forever. McTiernan was offered Batman no, Forever? He turned it down. I wouldn't have guessed that. I would not What have would a McTiernan that. Batman movie be like? Just for a second. Oh my Had God. Had they ever met the man Think when they offered that. this to him? It doesn't feel like a natural <laughs> fit. <laughs> um, well, Last Action oh Hero is pretty pretty crazy, you know, and yeah, meta but not crazy and in the way that bat, That's like if Nolan directed, like, like it's, it's, it's too dark or, like, you know what I mean? Like McTiernan would have been... I would watch it. Well, it would have. I had just think it's fascinating to ruminate on it. It would have know? had action what, scenes that make sense, whereas I think in Batman Forever, I don't really know what's going on in the action sequences. But John McTiernan is so brilliant yeah. at, at that geography um, that yes, I am on the record as an appreciator of Schumacher's Batman movies, but I don't necessarily defend them. I think they have things about them that are. I think Batman and Robin is better than Batman Forever. I'll just I'll, I'll say I'm a I'm a vigorous but. defender of Joel Schumacher, but not his Batman movies. Yeah. With, I love with Joel you on that. Schumacher. I love his other movies, but not I can't. with you. What's your favorite Schumacher movie? Falling Down. Oh yeah, whoa! We <laughs> said that queued up. Chris? Um, probably The Lost Boys, even though it's not mm. a great movie, but I saw it at the cinema recently at a midnight screening that Alex Winter presented. And man, that is a fun time at the movies. That is a fun movie to watch with an audience. Oh, I would love yeah. that, especially the saxophone scene. Sexy as yeah. hell. Like, uh, <laughs> take my, I'm a take big, my shirt uh, off, get in there. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like 8mm. I wouldn't say it's my favorite. I do like 8mm, and I also like Phone Booth. Mm, I think yeah. he's... Die Hard in a Phone I Booth. Tigerland's the one that's, I think, underrated of his, that's sort of forgotten and never mentioned. 8mm as well is great. Um, yeah, still, Colin great. Farrell. He's, he's he gave great. us Colin Farrell. You can't, you know, he's great. All right, okay. let's move on. Question number two. I really like this one. I'm, I'm patting myself on the back for this one. Jeremy Irons previously starred in a 1982 British film that shares the exact same title as one of Bruce Willis's most famous credits. Can you name it? Moonlighting? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Do you know the movie? I, I don't know the I movie. I don't know the movie, but, no. um, I thought this it would be felt... right up your alley, Liam, this movie, because it's, oh, tell me about it's it. an acclaimed drama written and directed by, uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, Jerzy Skolimowski, that <gasps> won the Best Screenplay Award in wow. the 1982 Cannes Film Festival. Current... I love Jerzy mm. Skolimowski. Yeah, I figured you'd probably wow. like all over this cat. Like, <laughs> wow. Oh, man. He's a good filmmaker. I got to check that out. It's yeah. currently available yeah. for free on Tubi, Freebie, Plex, and Shout TV. Um, so that was just an interesting fact. Okay, you're going to need to collab. I'm glad you're collaborating because you're probably going to need to get your heads together on this final question. Sorry, I just need to take a minute and say that I got, I don't, can't believe I got that. It's very impressive. <laughs> so you're, you're actually good at it. You're good at this yeah, quiz. Yeah, I can't believe I got it. Okay. All right, question you know number what it three. Was? Saying it was a Bruce Willis credit. credit. Yeah. Not saying it was a movie. Smart, yeah. smart Eagle lived. eared. Eagle smart eared. Mm -hmm. I'm the John McClain of this <laughs> particular segment for this one question. All right, you guys are going to work together on this one, I think. Okay. Question number three. To date, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson have appeared in a total of five films together. Can you name Shit. all five? Okay. Pop Fiction and Die Hard. 
Yeah, done. Um, I'm going to go with loaded weapon. Correct. Oh, shit. Good. That was wow, the Joker Chris. in the deck. Chris, can you Chris. bring it home? Do they share scenes in the other two movies? I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so you haven't seen them. I okay, so that, seen, that eliminates, I've, I've seen, that eliminates no, they every do. action yes, movie. Yes, they definitely do in one. The other one, I, I haven't seen. Fuck. But in one of them, they definitely do. And there, again, there is a clue available, but I think you could probably crack it. Yeah. You can crack it. Ah, oh, man. Listen, this silence is great. Yeah. So All right, let's move. Let me give you the clue. Um, <laughs> yeah. The other two films are connected in an unconventional superhero franchise. Oh, Unbreakable and Glass. Yeah. Is correct. Damn of it. Course. I totally forgot yeah. about those movies. And I like Unbreakable quite a lot. Yeah, me too. It's great. I've never seen Glass, but I love Unbreakable. I think uh, one of Bruce Willis's best performances mm. by far. Well, Congratulations, guys! You got nice, all, nice job, you got guys. all three working together. Well played, Chris. Uh, good, Great uh, good stuff up to you for that. Uh, Chris, I want you to Damn stick it. around for for a minute because there's something I wanted to um, to talk about, um, which is a, a a plug that I that I wanted to do. Um, so yeah, but, uh, you know, and I want to hear what you guys, you know, anything you want to talk about. But before you go. Um, I wanted to talk about a project that I'm involved with, which is called um, American English Soccer. Now, forgive the use of that term, Chris. I know you're probably in internally <laughs> going nuts uh, for you know. I'm in that I'm in that weird spot as a Brit who's been living here for for ten years. I have to refer to it that way. But I'm involved with this with this podcast, you um, and it's a show that I really love and I'm really proud to be involved with. And these the two hosts of this show. Lewis and MC have this incredible 360 degree knowledge of the sport that I find absolutely like flabbergasting. It, 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 it covers everything in, they somehow know everything going on in every league, whether it's the Champions League, the Serie A, Ligue 1, uh, La Liga, Bundesliga, MLS, NWSL. If you want to know how Jude Bellingham is doing at Real Madrid, if you want to know how Christian Pulisic is doing at AC Milan, if you want to know how Harry Kane's faring in the race for the Bundesliga, these guys know absolutely everything. So the show is basically everything going on around the world in the beautiful game, all kind of squeezed and pressed into one delicious smoothie every week. And I'm the I'm there I'm on the show now as a semi-regular guest for the English Premier League as their kind of pundit offering... Um, my sort of irreverent opinion and analysis on it. So I know football has been something that you and I first bonded over mm. many, many. I'd love to ask you about Palace, but I'm worried that the conversation will be out of date uh, in terms of potential managerial changes <laughs> yeah. that may occur in the next week between now and the, the time the show comes out. Um, but it was something that uh, I just wanted to, to mention. Uh, so if that sounds like your cup of tea, then search for uh american english soccer that, um wherever you get your your podcast that sounds great and i believe the truth is i'm going to defend you here now is that the english came up with the word soccer and and, oh, and, it, and it came out of shortening the phrase association football sock is in the middle of association and that's that's where sock comes from but it's us brits that actually started calling it soccer then we stopped and the americans continued so it's our fault really I'm off the hook. Thank God. I thought, I was, I thought they were going to come for me. you're my favorite Englishman. <laughs> that includes everyone on this call. Um, 
I just want to give a shout out, um, Chris, to Clash of the Titles. Yes. Your podcast, here, here. which recently ended and, and I love to listen to and, and always had a really good good time listening to. And, and the feed will, will remain up. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the shows are still there. Yeah, we, we would take two movies with something in common and discuss them both and then decide which one we like best at the end. It was just an excuse to talk about films we love and films we hate yeah. and good films and bad films. And so... Yeah, I think that there's there's about 500 episodes probably out there. Wow. Something like that. I think we I think we got up to 450. Um and I guess people that listen to your show love action movies. We've done a lot of the same action movies, a lot of the the Die Hard on a Blank films, but we've also we go a bit further back. There's there's First Blood we did recently, RoboCop, Top Gun, Predator, Karate Kid versus No Retreat, No Surrender. That was a favorite of mine. Have you guys seen No Retreat, No Surrender? I haven't actually. I haven't. One of Van Damme's early yeah, credits, right? It's a yeah. He, he's he's sort of a, a a voiceless villain in it, but yeah, it's the it's the Karate Kid plot. But the kid, rather than getting lessons from Mister Miyagi, he gets lessons from the ghost of Bruce Lee. And it's as oh wow, it's as bad wow. as that sounds. It's as bad as that sounds, <laughs> and it is fantastic. So um, yeah, Clash of the Titles. It's out there. Well, I'll recommend a couple of episodes, if I may, that I have listened to multiple times because I love I love Clash of Titles. And I was oh, so, great show. so it's one of the first podcasts Phil ever told me about. And genuinely, Phil, Phil me to it. genuinely yeah. inspired me to pursue this, you know. And Chris, like, is, is truly one of the, the nicest people I've ever met, especially in this in this industry, and was so kind in giving me advice and and uh when when I was first like thinking about this project and help has helped me so many times throughout my uh career and life in so many amazing ways of actually genuinely helping like playing our uh trailer on your show that the one episode that I particularly love of your show was the Red Heat versus Tango and Cash episode which I've listened to probably 3 times because I re I love both of those movies but mm. I particularly have a weird obsessional love for Red Heat uh, as a sort of marginalized movie from the 80s that I feel like it was just on telly yeah. on, ITV on ITV all the time. On ITV right? <laughs> on ITV yeah, on a Saturday right? night and it, and, and the, the news yes. would be on at 10 o'clock cutting it up. You get an hour and yes. then the news and then yes. an hour. Dun, 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 with freaking dun, dun. adverts. The news at 10 Wait, with Trevor McDonald. Wait, they would interrupt the movie with the news? <laughs> wow, that would not happen in the USA of entertainment, my friends. We wouldn't do that. I mean, I, w I wow. will say I think that, that episode, those two episodes, we did more laughing than actual talking. But yeah, man, it's fun revisiting these action movies as you guys are discovering. Like they're some of the most fun uh, of the films that we covered was was dumb, dumb action. Yeah, it was a wonderful it's show. Important. Episodes are all there. Fog versus the Mist was another one that I love. But there's in you know you, you can find whatever your favorite movie is. Chances are these guys have covered it. They're they're absolutely fantastic. Um, it's an amazing great show. show. Really great oh, show. What else? What's is going on at uh, Dexerto? Tell us a bit about that. Oh, just covering movies, covering TV. You know, um, you know, it was, this will be out of date by the time you put this out. But the Oscar nominations are out today, so we did a ton of writing on that. 
yeah. So yeah, come to us. Thank you for alerting me. This is what I wanted to ask you about. Thank you for alerting me to the four nominations for the Pope's Exorcist, a movie that I think should be up yeah, for as many people Academy are, people Awards are, as possible. I, I, I posted the nominations on Twitter, and people are saying that Five Nights at Freddy's didn't get five nominations. I don't know what people are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually that Night at Freddy's got five uh, nominations. Okay. That's actually what but I yeah, think of. And, no, I'm a huge Pope's Exorcist fan. I want 400 sequels to that movie. I think it's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well that's about um, it folks unless you have anything final I thoughts have one small Liam? Plug. Yeah. speaking Plugs. of action revisiting action movies which is if you're a fan of this show you should probably revisit the 1990 paul verhoven incredible piece of work total recall because we'll be talking about it on eye of the duck with our friends adam and dom in the very near future hopefully right after this episode comes out so total recall you should revisit it. You should also revisit, uh, re- excuse me, you should also revisit Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, so that we can not talk about it in two weeks, but instead just talk about the goat Eric Bogosian, uh, succession star and playwright and genius. Uh, that's our next movie, Under Siege 2. Chris, have you seen Under Siege 2? I have. I couldn't tell you anything that happens in it. Yeah, I watched it last week and I couldn't tell you anything <laughs> that happens in it. <laughs> it evaporates instantly. <laughs> But those yeah. could be the most fun to talk one. about, as I'm saying, as you guys know. Yeah. Well, if Eric Bogosian's in it, then and we can talk about talk radio uh, and everything else that that genius has done, then you know we, we'll find a way to make that a very interesting and entertaining hour. It's going to be special. Um, All right, Chris. God bless you. It's been lovely to see you. Um, Great to have you on and all your insights Thank you, Chris. and r- diligent research and and hot takes and just you know your uh, your uh, general wonderfulness. Brilliant to have you here, and my friend. And um, yeah, we'll uh, yeah we'll be back next time, I guess. We'll be back next time with not a very good sequel. <laughs> Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast created and hosted by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Rate, review, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell your movie podcast-loving friends about Die Hard on a Blank. Special thanks to Suki Chu. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.